0: This
1: audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
0: Again, good morning. Uh, I'm Ted Sin. Glad you're here. We start this morning a new series uh, in the book of Exodus in the coming months, maybe years, um, through various seasons and times. We're going to try and tackle uh, this book together. I doubt we'll go verse by verse through the whole thing as we have done with other books in the past. Um, but for now, I just decided we'd start in chapter one, and when it's time to take a break, we'll, we'll take a break. And so as we get started... Uh, a couple of really introductory remarks that are going to assist us in the sermon this morning, but in essence are ways for us to understand uh, the whole book. So I want to talk to you about Exodus in the scheme of things, and I want to talk to you quickly about Exodus in the grand scheme of things. Okay, the scheme of things and the grand scheme of things, two introductory uh, remarks. If we're going to understand Exodus, we have to understand that Exodus is simply one chapter in five. Uh, Exodus is the second act of a five-act play, uh, if you will. Uh, It's a book that was written amid other books by Moses right before Moses died. So the first, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the the five chapters or the five acts of Moses' book, otherwise called the Pentateuch, otherwise called the Torah, uh, these five books uh, have as Exodus uh, the second chapter, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers Deuteronomy. And it's important for us to realize that there's a big connection between what comes before Exodus and what comes after. For example, you won't see this in your translation, and I won't see it in my translation, but the very first word of the book of Exodus is the word, and. Literally, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. So Moses is telling us right away what I just said in Genesis is to be followed up by Exodus. So in the scheme of things, in the scheme of Moses's literary work. We, we have to understand that Exodus cannot be read on its own. It has to be read within the context of Genesis to Deuteronomy. And we also have to understand that, that Moses wrote this to a particular people when they were about to enter the promised land. Moses in the plains of Moab is about to die. He's not going into the promised land with the second generation. And he writes Genesis to Deuteronomy for the people for a specific purpose. And so we have to understand the scheme of things to understand the whole book. But secondly, we have to understand the grand scheme of things. Uh, Not only does Moses and Exodus uh, uh, cover hundreds of years of history uh, for the benefit of those who are in the plains of Moab, but, but Moses ultimately writes for our benefit as we read Exodus in our context. And, and so I'm going to remind you of this later. By the way, this is going to be a riveting sermon. Uh, not because I'm that great of a preacher, but the story is so riveting in and of itself, I would have to be a horrible preacher to mess it up. Um, but it's going to be riveting. I know this is a little bit difficult to stay with me right now, but this is crucial. Not only today, but it's going to be crucial for literally months to come. Jesus and other New Testament authors taught that Jesus was ultimately anticipated by Exodus and that Jesus is the fulfillment of Exodus. In fact, Jesus said the entire Old Testament is about him, that the Old Testament points towards him, not just in prophecies, but in pictures and signs and stories. And that for us on this side of the cross, if we were to read Exodus and not understand the grand scheme of things, we would miss the point completely. Of course, the, the history is real. Of course, Moses' original intention was real and valid and good. But God's ultimate intention, as the author of the entire Bible, of one story with one hero, is to help us understand this story through the lens of the cross. So, the scheme of things is you can't even read Exodus by itself. It's got to be Genesis to Deuteronomy. The grand scheme of things is you can't read Exodus at all without understanding that it's ultimately about Jesus, and then also it's ultimately Um, Well, it's also radically about us and our faith. Okay, so quick analogy, and and then we'll move forward. I had a professor uh, in seminary. Richard Pratt was a brilliant man and a brilliant professor, and he talked about these different angles of how you have to look at Old Testament stories. When you're reading a story or a narrative in the Old Testament, like the one we have in front of us today, you have to see the story as a window, as a picture, and as a mirror. And so what Richard Pratt means by that is you have to first look at the text, Exodus 1, as a window. Moses is providing us with a portal into history that we might understand, understand things that actually happened. And at the same time, it's a picture. And, and what we mean by that is that Moses crafted this in such a way, this entire Pentateuch, the, the book of Exodus, this first chapter, he crafted it in such a way that a particular audience would benefit from it particularly well. And so the picture that we study is the literary work that Moses presented to the second generation Israelites in the plains of Moab before they go in the Promised Land. But finally, it's a mirror. And what we mean by that is kind of touching on the grand scheme of things, that when we read this text, we have to see ourselves, our need for Jesus, and what Jesus is going to do in us because he's so good. So with all that being said, this is our outline For this morning. And I don't know if I'll use this outline more in the future. If it behooves us, I will, because my goal is not just to explain this text to you and to bring us to the place where we worship Christ together. My goal is that when you go out from here and read Old Testament narratives, you do them more faithfully and more effectively. And so the the outline this morning is the story, their story, our story. In the story, we're going to talk about, and we're going to spend most of our time in the story. We're going to walk extensively through the text and the history that happened that Moses records for us. When we talk about their story, we're going to think about how Moses wrote this to his original audience and why he did it in that way. And then in our story, we're going to, of course, think about ourselves and how the cross of Jesus impacts us as we see this story through that cross. So with that being said, the riveting part hopefully will begin soon. And so I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be together. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. We pray that you'd give us insight. We pray that you'd give us appreciation for your word. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, be engaged in this time, uh, far beyond anything that we could bring to the table on our own, but we would be engaged in such a way that we would walk away saying that clearly you were here teaching us. Clearly you were here uh, using this text, using this sermon, engaging our hearts with this material. Would you uh, be faithful to your promises, to not allow your, your word to return void this morning. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So first, the story. Okay, the story. If you don't have the text in your hand, you're going to want it. I'm going to walk you through essentially all 22 verses. In verse, verses 1 through 7, we see that God is fulfilling his promises to the patriarchs. Okay, okay. The sons of Israel, or the sons of Jacob in verse 1, have become by God's blessing the people of Israel, verse 7. There, there are hundreds of years captured in these seven verses. The 70 descendants, verse 5, that fled to Egypt to, to survive a devastating famine, those 70 had become multiple generations, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And this reality that a nation had evolved from one family, it was a fulfillment of God's direct promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis, okay? In Genesis 12, what the original audience would have just heard, and God called Abraham away from his family, away from his kindred and his father's house, and he promised Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to make a massive and prominent nation come out of your loins, In Genesis 15, God visits Abraham again, and he said, the land you're walking in right now is the land that the nation that comes out of you is going to populate. And not only that, he again speaks to the number and the magnitude of the nation. He says, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. In Genesis 26, God promised Isaac, Abraham's son, that he would be with Isaac, that he would bless him. And and God said to him, I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then lastly, God spoke to Jacob in Genesis 46, or Israel. He has two names in the Old Testament. And God said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And Joseph, whose death is recorded in our text, in verse 6, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Joseph is the one whose brothers, the uh, the other guys listed in verses 2 through 4, his brothers sold him into slavery because they were so jealous of him and, and because Joseph was a bratty little idiot. Joseph, by God's kindness, uh, severe kindness at times, became the prime minister of Egypt, second in power to the Pharaoh of the time. And Joseph saved the entire country of Egypt and many surrounding peoples by having the nation store up seven years of grain in order to to prepare for a massive famine. And of course, this is the famine that brought Jacob and his other sons to Egypt in the providence of God. So all that to say, verse 7 of Exodus 1 is incredibly redundant. It uses a lot of the language of Exodus, and it's basically letting us know that God fulfills his promises. God is accomplishing his will. God is doing what he said he would do. God is getting done what he wants to get done. Look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Uh, You can almost hear an echo in the text, like the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore. Keep reading. Keep reading the story, the history recorded by Moses in Exodus 1. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, Now, remember, Joseph, hundreds of years before, was the prime minister of a previous pharaoh. And that Pharaoh had given the 70 descendants of Israel Goshen as a land to live in. And that Pharaoh had officially recognized the Israelites as shepherds. And that Pharaoh, on two occasions in Genesis, he gave the descendants of Israel the assurance that they would be accepted and included in Egypt. But there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know or or acknowledge or appreciate or have a relationship with Joseph. Brief historical note that the original audience would have understood. It's almost certain that Joseph was the prime minister of a Hyksos dynasty. All right? I know you don't know what that means. I didn't either until I started studying. In Egyptian history, for a season, there was a dynasty of pharaohs who were from Asia and not Egypt. Egypt was conquered and occupied by the Hyksos dynasty, okay? And so Egypt um, uh, didn't particularly enjoy these folks from Asia, and these folks from Asia are ethnic cousins to the Israelites, okay? So the Pharaoh that Joseph worked for was from Asia and not Egypt. The Egyptians ousted the Hyksos dynasty and the people and the Pharaohs, and they viewed these Israelites in the land of Goshen with great, great suspicion, And so the new Pharaoh, the new Egyptian Pharaoh, had no sympathy, no interest in honoring the original promises to the people of Israel. If a Democrat has little interest in executing the policy of his Republican predecessor, you can know for sure that an Egyptian Pharaoh has no desire to extend the plans and desires of a Heksos Pharaoh. You can just kind of know that from 3,500 years down the road. Pick up in verse 9. And Pharaoh said to his people, it's a word for his country, it's, it's a word for his ethnic grouping. Behold, the people, the ethnic grouping of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. The text actually says they're more than us and they're mightier than us. Uh, a little bit of exaggeration and hyperbole if you know anything about geography. And by, by the way, the, the, the historians will tell you that this quote by Pharaoh sort of reads like a public address announcement. It's like a State of the Union address. He's establishing policy here. Pick up in verse 10. Notice the divisive us-them language in the text. It's not just that this Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so Pharaoh is playing the fear card. He's getting his people, the Egyptians, lathered up in fear of the Israelites so that they'll be willing to oppress them with him. He's saying if we're attacked by our Asiatic neighbors, we'll have to fight two battles, one from outside and one from inside the nation. And and Pharaoh's really not that worried about them leaving. In fact, if they would leave, that would make his life better. Uh, The word that's translated escape for us really is, all the other times in the Old Testament, it's, it's translated rise up like the sea in a flood. Pharaoh's like, I don't want them to rise up and take over. Verse 11, the national policy is going to flow from the public speech. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them, to oppress them, to bring them low, to beat them down with heavy burdens. Uh, It's a proven fact historically that one way to curb a population growth is to enslave a people. And to afflict them psychologically and physically with their labor. And of course, this is hard labor hard labor that would kill a man who is weak, and hard forced labor that would make a man not as cheerful and desirous of play at night, if you know what I mean. Welcome, fourth and fifth graders. But not only that, the text tells us at the end of verse 11 that Pharaoh decides to have them build two store cities for him, fortified cities in the northeast corner. Of the country, which meant that they not only had to work very long, tiring, beat down kind of hours, they had to live for months and months at a time away from their home. Now, remember, Pharaoh's goal is population control. God's goal is population multiplication. And of course, God's going to win. There's no reason to understand verse 12 except for to see it through the eyes of faith that God was getting done what he wanted to get done. But the more they were oppressed and afflicted, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So Pharaoh, through his own speech, worked the nation up into a panic. And then their enemy began to multiply around them. And it says that they were in dread, which is pathological anxiety, being sick with worry. The people they hated they were trying to squash was multiplying around them. And as you listen to verse 13 and 14, remember that any ethnic-based oppression in the history of man is brought about by arrogance and fear. The Egyptians don't say, dang. I mean, it sure appears that God's on their side. This is a literal reading of verse 13 and 14. Listen to the redundancy in the literary picture that Moses is painting. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel slave as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard slavery and mortar and brick and all kinds of slavery in the field. In all their slavery, they ruthlessly made them slave as slaves. God is heaven-bent on multiplying his people, and Pharaoh is hell-bent on stopping it. And we reach the penultimate step in, in Pharaoh's mission the decade long mission to bring population control to the Israelites verse 15 then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah when you not very popular names for biblical names when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool if it's a son you shall kill him but if it's a daughter she shall live. Now now in a moment, verse twenty two is going to tell us that Pharaoh's ultimate stage in, in the execution of his policy was to engage the entire nation of Egypt in the infanticide of little boys. But the question is this why did Pharaoh start here? Why, why did he think he could get the Hebrew midwives to play along uh, with his devilish plan? Why didn't he just go to verse twenty two right away? Well, first, I think Pharaoh wanted a covert operation. Fa- Pharaoh wanted uh, the midwives to take the baby's life when the mom was in the most pain, the most unable to understand what's going on. Uh, the midwives would be able to take the boy's life and blame the, the death on being a stillborn child. And, and I think that, that Moses was trying to get at the psyche of the Hebrews. I think, uh, I'm think i sorry, I think Pharaoh was trying to get to the psyche of the Hebrews. He wanted them to notice the trend in the infant boys being born stillborn. He wanted them to think that the gods were mad at them, not blessing them, not giving them the culturally preferred gender that would perpetuate their legacy. But why did he go after the Hebrew midwives? Did he really think they would do it? Did he think that they were going to play along? Think about it. You study history. Who's the easiest person to become treasonous? The spurned? The outsider, the outcast, the peripheral of society. This is what we know about midwives 3,500 years ago. No cool blogs and it's like countercultural trend, okay? This is what a midwife's life was like 3,500 years ago. Unfertile women who after years were not able to conceive and give birth to their own children, and they were, they were given the assignment by the community of assisting other moms in the birth of children day in and day out. They didn't have children at home that they'd have to leave behind when a woman went into labor at night. If a woman was in labor for a long time, it was no real bother to not be at home because there was no children to take care of. As such, midwives 3,500 years ago were not held in high esteem. They were outcasts, outsiders. It was believed of them that the gods were judging them for sins of the past. And Pharaoh thought, if there's anyone bitter enough, calloused enough, neglected enough, condemned enough, outcast enough to be willing to perform murderous treason in order to keep their life, it's a midwife. So Pharaoh literally said to the women in verse 16, when you serve as midwife... To the Hebrew moms, look to the stones. It doesn't say anything about birth stools or birth stones. There's nothing in Egyptian or Israel history to make us think they used stones somehow in delivery. It literally says, look to the stones. Look to the pebbles. We're not the first generation to come up with slang for body parts. Look to the pebbles. If it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter... She shall live. Keep reading in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Fear in the Hebrew does not mean terror and being deeply afraid. It means awe, respect, reverence, loyalty. It means to fear God more than man. It is to be more concerned, about what God can do to you than what man can do to you if you align yourself against him. It is to be more concerned with what God can do for you if you align yourself with him. And so in verse 18, the king of Egypt, he inquires as to why they're letting the little boys live and the midwives. They, they would have had some time to think of their answer to this, this question that was undoubtedly going to come upon them. I mean, think about this for a second. We read this in about two minutes. We watch a movie about it in about two hours. And we think these chapters fly by at warp speed. Consider everything that had to transpire in chapter one, a society without telephones, without email, without satellite television. This took decades to unfold. How long does it take to see if dealing shrewdly works? How long does it take to build a city and then another city? How long would it take for Pharaoh to get the data back that the Israelites are spreading and multiplying? How long would he have to learn that the boys are not dying off quicker than the girls? This doesn't happen overnight. And the midwives are finally called back in and and they either lie or they in some way technically tell the truth. And theologians can debate over this until we see Jesus in heaven. The only thing Moses is concerned about is to tell us again, Repetition, redundancy—they feared God. And so, verse twenty, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. So, from the language of the text, it's clear Shifra and Puah are like the leaders of numerous midwives. What they tell Pharaoh about the Israelite women being more vigorous, they say when the midwife gets there. They don't say when we get there. So, so we know from the size of the nation and from this text itself, there's multiple midwives out there working under the guidance of Shifra and Puah. And God didn't just multiply the womb of the women previously fertile. God gave children to the older women who at this point in their history had no reason to think that they would have a baby. And God kept miraculously multiplying his people. And Pharaoh did not respectfully resign himself to that reality. In verse 22, it's the ultimate stage of Pharaoh's progressive oppression and attempt at Hebrew population control. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We know that this happened because this is where Pharaoh's daughter found Moses. Now we're going to look more closely next week at this reality because it lines up with the story of Moses in chapter 2, but it was overt national policy to pick up little boys and throw them to the crocodiles in the Nile River. And Moses is letting us know. That while God was accomplishing his agenda, he was multiplying his people, the Israelites were in horrible pain, horrible affliction, horrible grief. They were a slave caste, separated from their families, treated ruthlessly and inhumanely, having their own sons sacrificed in the Nile. Life sucked for the Israelites. And Moses needs us to know that. He would not have been so redundant otherwise. So that's the story, the window into history given to us in one chapter of Exodus. But what's their story? What's the picture painted by Moses to the original audience? And in order for us to understand this text for us, we have to walk through this step of understanding the intent to the original audience. We can't spend a lot of time on it today. We'll, of course, develop it in the coming weeks. But keep this in mind. The original audience did not, by and large, experience the events recorded by Moses in Exodus 1. They're, 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 now, if they were in Egypt at all, they were in a baby baby Bjorn coming across the river. Okay, that's kind of what we'll learn later in the book. But the original audience, the men and women and the children in the plains of Moab that, that are about to enter into and fight for the promised land, they had experienced hardships in their lives, and they would experience more in the coming days. Their suffering was nothing like the suffering of their ancestors in Egypt, but they had wandered around in the desert for 40 years. They had 40 years of dust and wind and wild animals and heat, 40 years of the same food over and over, 40 years of feeling restless and frustrated and on the edge, 40 years of living life with cantankerous neighbors. Their parents were dying off around them all over the place. The leader who had miraculously brought them out of the land, who was BFFs with God, was about to go and be with God and not be with them. And they were about to enter into a battle with others who had cities and walls and weaponry. And all they had was the ability to make cities, the ability to shepherd animals, the ability to be very, very fertile. And Moses Wrote to these people about to literally face giants. And he said three things to them by the way he wrote this text. This is the picture of the text. First thing Moses says God accomplishes what he promises. The redundant theme of verse seven and the redundant reality throughout the whole first chapter is this God's will will be done. Moses is saying, God told us that his people will live in this land and they will eat fruit off of trees they did not plant and they will live in houses they did not build. And God told us that he would fight for us and remove the evil inhabitants of this land. And Moses is saying to them, God will do what he said. Second thing Moses is saying to that audience in their story is God's enemy and God's enemies don't have the habit of resignation and surrender. God's enemies cannot defeat God, but God's enemies have no qualms about making life hell for the followers of God. There will be times in life where God seems obviously on the move, but conspicuously absent in the sufferings of his people. Moses is telling them, if you're going to be a part of God's kingdom expansion, presume that the suffering and the affliction will go up and not down. Third point, by the way, Moses wrote this text with the literary technique of repetition and redundancy is that in the end, it will go well, verse 20, for those who fear God more than man. Moses is saying, I know that there's a lot to be afraid of in the future, but fear God, and it will in time, maybe not in your lifetime, but it will in time go well with you. It didn't go well for the 400 years of affliction in Egypt, And I can almost hear the Israelites saying, how can we know? How can we trust? And this is the point of the picture. This is the point of their story. He's saying, based on who God is, based on what God has promised, based on what God has already done, fear him, trust him, believe him, be loyal to him. He is saying you have more history to go off than the midwives. Not only did God multiply his people amid persecution, not only did God save many sons through the heroic faith of the midwives, God caused Moses, their deliverer, to be trained in Pharaoh's house and the wilderness. That was the only way he could lead them for 40 years. God brought about the 10 plagues of justice and judgment on the Pharaohs. God parted the sea and he caused their parents to walk across on dry ground. God showed up at Mount Sinai. God led them through a pillar of fire and smoke for decades. God caused water to come out of a rock to give them water when they were thirsty, God provided manna, bread, food from heaven every day. And he's saying based on who he is, based on what he has said, based on what he's already done in your life and in the life of your people, fear him, worship him, trust him. And so now our story. First, our personal stories. Is anyone right now suffering, confused, afraid of the future? Is anyone feeling afflicted, weighed down, beaten down as they try to, as best they know how, extend the kingdom of God? Does anyone know anyone who is suffering, confused, and afraid of the future? God, through Moses, is saying to us, first, for 99.99999% of us, Our suffering, not to trivialize it, but if I could, to coin a worm, relativize it, our suffering is nothing compared to what the heroes of the faith endured in Exodus 1. And second, at our point in redemptive history, we know so much more about God and his promises and his acts in the past. And so we can say, as we look at Exodus 1, we've suffered less And we know more than the midwives. We know more than the wilderness generation. The call to us is this not living out of the fear of man, but fearing God. So that's our story personally in the midst of our suffering. But what is our story as the people of God? How can we know? How can we know that He's trustworthy? From our vantage point in redemptive history, in the grand scheme of things, what do we know in addition to what has already been shown to us in the Old Testament? Exodus anticipates someone. Exodus is fulfilled by someone. Christian, what other story in your Bible goes down like this? A king proclaimed that all young boys of a certain geographic area should die. The hero was a social outcast, shamed as a bastard, In his life, because his mother conceived him out of wedlock. Where were the leading officials plotting murder in order to keep control of the people and the lamb? Where was a woman so radically fearful of God, she poured out her entire inheritance on him, and God said that her name, Mary, is to be mentioned every time the gospel is preached? How bizarre is it that we know Shifra and Puah's name? Do you know Pharaoh's name? Moses doesn't even mention it. The elders of Israel? No mention this amazing event that anticipates Christ, he's like, oh yeah, you got to know these women's name. And you got to keep telling people their name. Because when people believe, they're held up as models of faith. What story in our Bible? Is there a hero who, like the midwives, had the opportunity to exact revenge on those who marginalized him and oppressed him, and he didn't? What story in our Bible has the hero rejected by his country, betrayed by his close followers, abandoned by his best friends? What story do we know where the hero is given a family, not because he risked his life, but because he gave his life? What story do we know of where the hero didn't simply risk his life for the innocent, he gave his life for the guilty? What story do we have? If you're new to the Bible, the hero's name is Jesus. Jesus, Moses is saying to us far beyond anything he could imagine. He is saying, you have Jesus in your story. That's how you can trust him. That's how you can know that when you fear him, he will take care of you. That's how you know, maybe not in your lifetime, but he will, at the end of things, take care of you. Be faithful. In Romans 8, Paul says, we can know that for those who love God... All things, he says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, extreme poverty, and nakedness, danger, and sword. All things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes, according to his will. And it's almost like Paul knows we're going to say, that's amazing. How can we be sure? Because he backs it up in the verses that follow. He says, if God did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, How will God not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Anyone suffering, confused, afraid, based on who he is, based on what he said, based on what he's already done for millennia, fear him, trust him, lean into him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you so much, Jesus, that when you had the chance to leave the garden and leave us behind, you didn't. We thank you so much that your grace and your love was so overwhelming and sufficient that you would die the most shameful death in the history of man. You would endure the greatest suffering ever endured by a man, that you would go through hell, that we might be part of your victory, that we might be part of heaven. Jesus, you did not do this for some who could not do it for themselves. You did this for your enemy who could not do it for themselves. We thank you. God, we ask that you would give us faith. We know that faith is a gift from you. We know that the ability to see you when you're working, even in the midst of our suffering, the ability to see things from the eyes of faith comes from you. We ask for faith. We ask that when those are suffering around us, that you would give us confidence based on what you have said in your word to tell them to hold on, that you're trustworthy and good and in your timing and in your way, it all works out. Would you, in fact, cause us to learn from these stories of those who have gone before us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.